0: Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care podcast, a general practice podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Illuminating Primary Care is here to quiz primary care leaders to offer professional knowledge, experience, and insight on the biggest topics in general practice. It's the podcast to listen to if you work in primary care. Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Illuminating Primary Care, brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. I'm your host today, James Trusswell, and I'm joined by Dr Hasnain Abassi, one of the founding clinical directors of AT Medics. Welcome Hasnain. Hi James, thank you. Um, so established in 2004 by six clinical directors, AT Medics run 46 surgeries and three walk-in centres. Um, serving 370,000 patients across London. Um, They merged with OPERO's Health in February 2021, uh, and between the two, they now run a combined 66 sites, serving 600,000 patients, making them the biggest primary care provider in the UK. AT Medics has consistently turned around previously troubled or failing practices with poor CQC ratings, um, turning them into slicker, fully functioning practices and dragging them out of special measures to become CQC good or even outstanding practices. So first question, Hasnain, um, how did AT Medics start?
2: Uh, Thanks, James. So look, um, AT Medics started in 2004-05 in that kind of time period and two of my partners um, who were the year above, really, in terms of the year ahead, in terms of doing GP training. So we were all kind of doing different things. Uh, Tarek, one of the partners, he was doing pediatrics, I was doing anesthetics. And we kind of decided that we were gonna work together. So we kind of swapped out of our specialty training and into general practice. Um, But really, you know, at the time we had no idea that we'd end up having all these practices our our idea was really just to work together in a single practice which was really unrealistic because there were six of us um so what we did is we basically during my gp registrar year um and imran and 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 ozzy had already qualified we just started writing to all the primary care directors in london which seems really uh, archaic at the time but literally wrote a letter and posted it in an envelope and (laughs) nobody replied um, except one guy. <laughs> one guy replied and said, "Why don't you come and meet us?" So the four of us went up there and met met the guy. This was Kensington the Chelsea, uh, PCT at the time. Mm. And he said, "We've got a tiny practice. It's run out of one room, and the GP has just been struck off. We need someone to run it from Monday. Would you be happy to do it?" <laughs> and um, Ozzy and Imran said, "Yeah, yeah, we'll do it. We'll take it on." Yeah. And so that that was kind of our first and in parallel to that there was another tiny practice in mottingham which is down in southeast london a very deprived area where i think the gp had had a stroke unfortunately and aussie had been there and had done a few locums and just this practice was absolutely in in pieces so he approached the pct and said look why don't you let us run it we'll still be locums but we want to do a bit more than a locum does we want to try and digitize it and make it better and really that's the kernel of where it started. I mean, I mean that th- those two practices really kind of got us going, two tiny, tiny practices. Mm. Um, and you know, the time at which me and Tarek then qualified, there were four of us, and we only had a list size of about three thousand patients, and <laughs> you know, one one doctor kind of listened to us and just laughed and just said, We'll see how far you guys get with three thousand patients. So that kind of spurred us on a little bit. Um mm. but that's kind of the kernel of where it started, really. We wanted to work together, but but it didn't ever really happen. We just ended up getting a couple of small practices.
1: Wow, that's really interesting and not what I expected the answer to be at all. So when you talked about you were doing different speciality training, so did you then all move to GP and do your three year GP training? And was it at the end of that, that you approached um, all those practices, you know, by writing your letter? Is that, that, is that the kind of the, the chronology yes. of what happened? So I don't know if you
2: can hear, it, but there's thunder going on in the background here. Um, <laughs> What, what happened is that um, Imran, really, whose idea it was, um, this was earlier, this was probably in around 2002, 2003. Um, at that time, you know, Manib, one of our partners, was in the RAF, Tariq was doing pediatrics, like I said, I was doing anaesthetics. Um, the other two were already within general practice, but we were just kind of throwing ideas around, you know, how can we work together, it'd be quite fun to do it. It was only really when we all got into general practice that we said, okay, what are we are going to do now? How are we going to make this thing happen? And we just thought, okay, let's write. In those days, we had a little book. It sat on my trainer's shelf, and it had all of the uh, PC director's numbers on it. And we just decided to write to them, really, in our naivety, thinking, um, and, you know, it, it, as always, there's always one person, luckily, who saves your bacon, really.
3: Yeah. And,
2: and so it was at that time that we started. So we were registrars at the time. When we then came out of training, me and Tarek, we then caught up with Imran and Ozzy, who had already been GPs for a year, and so then the four of us, and then the other two were still doing their own bits, and they joined us a year later, because we were all at slightly different bits of our training and taking right. different routes. Um, so really, for the first year, I mean, we ran those two practices. They were really tiny practices. They were really, you know, probably hadn't changed much since the 60s or 70s. No computerization, uh, poor premises. And so we did work with the PCT to look at premises, but we did a lot of quality improvement in that time. And really it's where we learned. you know, we learned systems, we learned processes, we learned to protocolise stuff. Um, but in terms of that transition to where we got to in AT Medics, that really came probably about seven months later. So at the time, so in this is 2005, 2006, 2005, the Labour government bought in the idea of APMS contracts which Mm -hmm. really allowed uh, corporate entities to hold GP contracts. Prior to that, you had to be really be in a partnership, broadly speaking, to hold a contract. Mm -hmm. And there were two types. There were GMS and PMS contracts. And really, I don't think they had us in mind. When those contracts were formed, they were to allow much larger organizations like maybe Virgin Care uh, or Care UK or the other larger organizations to do it. Um, It wasn't really envisaged that it would be GPs. But it suited us at the time to set up as a limited company. and so when those con, so the first contract that came out, um, really was Barbie Surgery. So that first tiny contract that we had run in a temporary way, we then bid for that contract when it came out. Mm. Now at the time, no one really knew much about it, so we were quite lucky. We kind of had an open goal, really, to to mm. shoot into. So we bid for this practice. We basically got it because we'd, we'd been running it for six months anyway. Yeah. And then six months later in East London. Uh, I would say the first proper procurement of a contract that I can recall ever really in the n h s for primary care really came, and that was really the first proper one and in that contract, you may not remember you're too young, but United Health <laughs> had wanted to to the market so United Health were a large American corporation that yeah. wanted you know had thoughts about entering the n h s and then there was another company called Mercury Health, which were the predecessor to care u k there was us. And so just a couple of us really turning up and there were whole teams of other people there. But we really knew our stuff. So we bid for that contract and we beat all those big entities. One is it gave us a lot of confidence um, mm. that we knew you know, we could write a bid because um, yeah. we'd never written a bid before. I mean, we literally Googled in how to write a bid. It sounds crazy <laughs> now, but we didn't know how to write a bid. And yeah. bids were very different in those days to how they are yeah. now. Um, it was like writing a GCSU project. You basically had to rep- compile a bid with all the things you thought were important. So anyway, we won that. We won that, which we we had no expectation of winning that, and we won that, and that really gave us confidence to to really take it on.
3: Yeah.
1: Um,
2: and then that, at that point, we really had two two or three practices. Um, yeah. And it kind so of snowballed you, after that.
1: You so you wrote a better bid than a huge American corporation, a United Health, and who probably had bid writers presumably.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, it's an interesting question about bid writing because. Um, Bid writing is probably one of the most depressing things you can do in your life. <laughs> um, and and it, it kills your time with your family. It takes hours and hours and hours to do. Mm-hmm. And so really over the last kind of 15 years, obviously mm-hmm. we've written a lot of bids mm-hmm. and we've always written our own bids. Mm-hmm. And it's the most difficult thing to do because the level of detail, um, the quality of the writing, um, particularly the clinical angles, you really can't get from someone. Um, we did try and use a bid writer at one point. Mm. Um, but it really didn't work out, to be honest. Um and, and we never used one again. Um and in fact even that bid with the bid writer, we actually rewrote it because we weren't happy with what the bid writer was writing. Right. So we never used the bid writer again.
3: Um yeah.
2: I think all good businesses have to have very good people writing bids. Um, yeah. because it's the life and blood of your organization to yeah, grow it all the way. Yeah. yeah
1: if it's just a of right to the desert as a speciality i guess they don't really know the intricacies of of general practice and those types of things and could end right. up taking more time <laughs> out of away from your family if they're asking lots of questions um just just going back a second just when you're answering that first question about how AT started um you mentioned that you you were a registrar when you wrote to all those um PC, pcts at the time so what were you in your st3 year
2: yeah, so S T three yeah, yeah. We right. ST3. And, <laughs> That's I know nice.
1: it sounds <laughs> That's smart now. Um,
2: and then we came so, out just you know so, so we qualified. Uh so we qualified in February. I don't know why it ended up being February, qualified in February. And in April we were, you know, we were running our own practice. I was running me and Tarek <laughs> were basically in our particular practice and Ozzy Nimro and in a different one.
3: Yeah.
2: And just kind of learnt on the job. So, um
1: yeah, so how, how, well, that was going to be my next question, was how, how you knew how to run those first two practices and, and how you learned.
2: We, I mean, look, the truth is we probably didn't. I mean, now at the time, <laughs> we thought we knew what we were doing. Yeah. And um, it, it's a feature of um, kind of, you know, when you qualify as a GP at that time, you think you're like the best GP there's ever been because you just passed your exams. Now, when I look back, obviously it's a completely different mindset. You know, when you look back, you realize your naivety and probably stupidity um but we just kind of um we just kind of learned on the job man we just yeah. kept going i mean I, I remember when we had three employees and so yeah. i remember um i remember paying people i remember sitting down and actually paying people's pay at the end of the month and i did that for quite a long time because we didn't have really yeah. any infrastructure support i remember sitting in reception helping out because it's a very small practice um and what we didn't realize is we were being educated, you know, life was educating us about how to yes. run a GB practice. We, we did everything, man. And, you know, it sounds like I'm being romantic, but everything from like cleaning to doing the payroll to looking at HR, everything we learned from the ground up, um, which stood us in good stead, really. Um, yeah. But we didn't know it. We, we definitely didn't know <clears throat> it.
1: No. And you mentioned also in those first couple of practices, quality improvement and also digitizing the practices. So, how how did you know what? How did you know what quality improvement to implement and, and and what kind of digitizing are you talking about at that point? So
2: yeah, it's a good question. I mean look, you know, many practices at the time had already you know, general practice has always been really innovative, always, and has been the most innovative part of the NHS. And so mm. our training practice that we trained at, so training practices that have trainee doctors tend to be a bit more um have a higher quality standard, I would say, potentially than a practice that doesn't, because Previously, you'd have visits externally to quality assure what you're doing. So we'd got in and we'd always been used to using a computer. But when we got there, this particular GP, who unfortunately wasn't able to run the practice anymore, had only had still been using paper. Yeah. We, just, we were just hamstrung. So it was just about how do you digitize the notes? Once you digitize them, how do you get disease registers up and running? Because QUOF had just come in that year. It was the first year of quaff I uh, beg pardon, second year of COF when, when we took over in April. So COF had kind of come in as understanding how to get disease registers um but we found all sorts of stuff man we found you know this was these were the old days man so you know we found drugs that probably shouldn't have been lying around the practice lying around the practice Mm -hmm. um all sorts of stuff in drawers that probably shouldn't be there um you know things have changed massively um but we had a general sense of what we wanted to do and really in our minds at the time we were just trying to get it up to a basic standard i mean i would say these were substandard practices because they were just out of date they just weren't fit for that time but that culture of innovation I think really kind of stayed with us all the way throughout but how do you keep improving how do you keep getting better
3: yeah
2: um, and trying new things we we're quite lucky in a way because when you don't have baggage from um, other maybe a senior partner who's been around for a long time you can do what you want to some extent yeah and we tried and failed lots of times at at stuff um but it wasn't a problem because our culture was you know don't worry about it try again um so that's kind of how we did it
1: (laughs) and you talked about um doing payroll doing the cleaning doing everything sitting on reception etc so obviously you've you've, you've got to the clinical work as well (laughs) and the doctoring so um were you just there all hours i take it it was uh not, yeah, much, yeah. not much, not much family time or anything else.
2: It was, and and you know, the, the issue for us was that when we first, there were four of us, we really weren't earning enough to sustain us because our list size was tiny between the four of us, um, and we were all at that phase where we'd all just kind of got married a few years ago, maybe had one child, had all the same issues everyone else has now—the mortgages to pay—and mm-hmm. part of it was like we need to like do something to make ourselves just. We, we were well below. And, and, you know, we'd have, we'd have our friends tell us, oh, you're wasting your time. Uh, I remember <laughs> one of my friends said to me, I'm doing a locum this weekend in, in Ipswich. I remember the conversation, he said, you know, we're doing, I'm, I've got a locum this week in Ipswich. It's a long bank holiday weekend. I'm getting a hundred pounds an hour. You know, this is 2006, yeah. long time with a lot of money. Taking yeah. a hundred pounds an hour. I'm doing all these hours, you know, you're wasting your time. Um, <laughs> and we were earning very, very little by, by comparison. I think at that point we kind of realized that this this is something, there's something to this that we can yeah. do. But it was all by accident. I don't want to rewrite history and say we yeah. we'd seen it. We we definitely hadn't seen it. It was just, you know, just, yeah. just right place. Right it place. was,
1: yeah, too, too early for a vision. And you were just kind of following the passion about the sounds of it. Correct.
3: Yeah. Exactly.
1: And, um, so, so initially, the whole idea came about just because you guys wanted to work together. <laughs> that was kind of the crux of it. Yeah, but you, yeah. you, and, and there wasn't a way to do that in terms of a traditional partnership. Because I was going to ask, why did you choose to go down this path rather than a traditional partnership? But is that just because you couldn't all six of you have a job <laughs> in one partnership? There wasn't six vacancies in one place.
2: You know, there was, that's absolutely correct. I mean, what happened is that um, there used to be a practice in in Lambeth, where we're really well established, Lambeth is one of our kind of bases where we have a, a, a good list size. But there's a particular practice in, in Lambeth that was our ideal because this practice at the time had twenty thousand patients, and it was pretty much unheard of, uh, it certainly in and around London, to have such a large list size. There weren't many practices; most practices were like five thousand, six thousand list size, and so our they were always our ideal. This particular practice that you know those guys were very innovative. They had their IT systems joined with the local trust. They had massive, massive teaching, uh, kind of hubs as well. So, but we quickly realized that the general practice just wasn't at that time at any kind of scale. Most practices were tiny. You know, yeah. we call them kind of mom and pop size business. You know, five, six thousand patients, eight thousand patients. A big practice at that time would have been like ten, twelve thousand it's very different now because we had so many practices closed um, but it was just to work together but but I think we realised quite quickly that that just wasn't going to happen Could we did mm-hmm. get any positive responses.
1: So you've acquired as part of AT Medics 46 surgeries since those humble beginnings um, obviously you cover 66 sites um, with your merger with OPEROS um, but presumably you obviously went through 46 um, acquiring 46 surgeries so what, um, what situations have those practices been in when you've acquired them? What kind of state have they been in?
2: Okay, I mean, th- they've been variable. That's the first thing to say. By and large, um, look, practices that come up for tender tend to come out because something's gone wrong in the practice, usually. Um, so either there's been an issue with CQC more recently or there's been a partnership problem Um, or there was like a last man standing scenario and then that person retires and goes. So mostly the practices we picked up were in very deprived areas um, where typically people didn't want to work. So if you look at where our practices are, you know, we've got practices in New Addington, which is one of the most deprived areas in in Europe, I would say. If you look at um, Central Peckham, which I know is being gentrified, but Central Peckham still has much worse health outcomes. Um, East London, has terrible outcomes when you compare that to the national average. So they were all by and large in in areas that that were uh, very diverse. Um, And so we just found that generally the care, as measured by some targets, wasn't very good. The culture in the practice was generally not very good. Um, Practice often stagnated because, you know, maybe a very dynamic part and left And the people that were left didn't really know what they were doing or struggled Mm. and so gave the contract back. So broadly speaking, we found practices that weren't very well run and so really needed um, a lot of input um, on a lot of different fronts. Mm. Um, We were lucky when we were much smaller. So for a long time, people think this is, you know, whether they believe it or not. But, you know, we're doing a lot of clinical sessions. So for a very long period of time, we were all consulting like eight sessions a week, which sounds crazy now and doing Mm. everything else at the same time. And doing everything else. (laughs) So, yeah, so so we kind of learned, you know, the clinical turnaround, we were deeply involved in ourselves. You know, we knew what was going on because we were consulting all the time. Obviously, you know, the law of diminishing returns, you can't keep doing that as you get bigger and bigger. Um, But then we would split our sessions between two sites until it got to the point where it's just unfeasible. Um, But really culture, training, one of the things that we did always find, though, is that in each practice, you would always find a gem of a staff member, mm. um, either an admin person or a nurse or someone who really believed in the process, really wanted to stay. Um, and in fact, one of the features, I guess, of our organization has been how we've had staff come through the ranks, um, really from junior. So I mean, you call it talent spotting. Mm -hmm. so these practices really need a lot of input um but really culture and staff is what make you know we are you know primary care is a service uh kind of sector you know we are there to provide a service to our patients so with all the best will in the world if you don't have good staff ultimately the care you deliver is going to be poor um i guess the other thing to say is that we were always very, very focused, and, and I'm honestly not being holier than now about this, but we were very focused on quality outcomes. Very, mm-hmm. very, very focused. Um, mainly because these some of these practices had never had very good achievements. So mm-hmm. um, we wanted to make it better. Um, and second was, we, you know, unfortunately when we started doing this, there was a lot of suspicion from from our GP colleagues about who these guys were. Why were they doing APMS? What were what did they want to do? Um and so we always kind of felt like we had a bit of a target on our back. We wanted to make sure that we were better than everyone else. So there's a huge competitive kind of streak in all of us that we want mm-hmm. to be the best in terms of our quaff scores, our outcomes, our smears, our IMS, mm-hmm. and having systems and, and processes to do that. And naturally that led to good patient outcomes. And then we people started to recognise that actually the quality is very, very good in these sites
1: Mm. um and you've you've clearly got a blueprint um every time you take on a new practice which is in special measures or it's you know poorly staffed or they're still using paper or whatever it would be poor quaff scores so what what's kind of the first things you you do when you when you go into a practice to look at how how bad it is and and what do you change
2: i mean looks a lot easier now first of all because we've got you know a much bigger team um and there are a lot more people with that knowledge yeah um but but in general terms look the first thing tends to be the obvious stuff you know is there anything absolutely immediately that needs sorting out yeah so is mm-hmm. there anything safeguarding perspective are there you know big big problems with anything like clinical safety that needs that cannot wait needs to be done really on day 1 day 2 day 3 in the first week Generally after that, it's just understanding the culture within the practice that exists. So it's changing the culture of the staff that are there. That Mm -hmm. either means we work with the staff that are there or it just naturally happens when you have new people coming in. Some staff naturally will leave. Unfortunately, sometimes you lose some good staff that way because they don't want to hang around to make a new relationship. It's not anything you've done. But the culture in the practice and the staffing for us and then the training that goes into it is absolutely critical. And we spend a lot of time doing that, a lot of internal resource. And I, I think one of the things we realized early on is that in general practice, um, we wanted to really upskill staff to do the most they could do, really for, enjoyable for them because now they're working and their job is more interesting than maybe just you know answering the phone, for example. Um, but really for HCAs to do something extra. And each, each time we've done that bit of innovation, um, we've got into trouble and maybe we pick that up later on. Um, but but that but that kind of culture i cannot stress the importance of that the culture and the practice once you change that and you change the customer service if you like our patient experience changes that's when you're fine because once the patients become friends with you and your vision and the patient's vision is the same it's Mm. much easier Um, and we learned that really through trial and error you know in the beginning we'd think we were doing something very good for patients And patients just wouldn't be happy, wouldn't be happy, wouldn't be happy. It was only when we learned that actually you've got to take patients with you on the journey because they don't always understand why you might be doing something or why that might Mm. be better for them. Um, They just want their medication. Why why are they coming in for a review? They haven't had a review for a long time. They just want their medication because they've always had their medication, you know, their Zopiclone or whatever it was. So changing the culture within the practice and with our patient group, um, once we got those two things right, that's been the most successful practice that we've had. Um, and yeah. when we've got that wrong, and we have got it wrong for sure. Things take much longer to resolve.
1: Mm. And you mentioned there about getting in trouble with innovation. Um, so my next question was going to be about what the biggest challenges have been in growing AT Medics.
2: I mean I'll tell you something interesting. So j- j- I mean just just on that one, because it came to my mind. I mean, this was I mean I'll say it so so this was in um or what was it, it's an area in London really where <laughs> probably about more than 10 years ago so maybe 12 or 13 years ago Mm. we had our hcas we trained up our healthcare assistants who were really quite experienced at that time Mm. uh to do diabetic foot checks which now is like normal it's just normalized that's what happens in practice. um and we stopped our or, or we said in addition to our nurses our hcas can do diabetic foot checks and they can do some extra stuff that some of our nurses used to do and you know the chief nurse in this particular PCT, reported us to NHS England for unsafe practice. Right. So we then had to justify how and why we were making our HCAs do some activities that we just wasn't normalized at the time to do. And we kind of explained that look, we've got this training program, it's what we do, this is these are the types of things they're doing, they're under supervision and so on. It's now normalized. No one would bat an eyelid uh for an hda in fact it's, it's encouraged that they do that type of stuff mm. but we found that you know whenever you want to innovate and do something new mm. it always is a problem for some people um mm. and so for a lot of the time as long as we weren't breaking any rules we're within the normal frameworks that you'd expect to see um we just kept innovating and trying and, mm. and improving and eventually. Um, people have caught up I mean I would use I would say we were very early on in using clinical pharmacists in fact we're probably outside of like Boots and Lloyds and that kind of normal pharmacy. we're probably the largest employer of pharmacists I think in the country now um, in in primary care and we went early we realized there wasn't really a training program for them we have kind of we developed a whole two organizations which maybe we'll talk about later but teaching and learning has been a real feature of our mm. organization from the yeah. beginning. So over half the practice, I think, are training practices. We train ST2 doctor, ST1, 2 doctors, 2, and 3. We train foundation doctors. We train nurses. We have PA students. So the culture of teaching and learning um, has been really, really important. Um, mm. The most difficult challenge is, I mean, it's a funny one. You know, staffing has always been an issue in general. As far back as I can remember. Um, people have always talked about shortages um, of of GPs um, and that's always been an issue Um, it's much more of an issue now um, maybe than it was 10 years ago but staffing has always been a problem finding good quality staff Um, Mm.
1: is that any staff or is that just clinicians
2: I mean it it, so in the beginning so so practice nurses as far as back as I can remember have always been difficult to Mm. to find um, trained up so you'd often have to find someone who's good and train them up but that's always been an issue it's probably a bit easier now because I think you know maybe post-covid a lot of nurses are, are maybe leaving hospital nursing to come into the community yeah. um, but that was always an issue um, I remember the district nursing colleagues would always tell me that they just had shifted, just, you know they found it hard to find um, GPs uh, always been scarce supply even when we, when we qualified there was always a shortage of gps you couldn't there were not enough gps to go around um when we first started employing pharmacists there were plenty of them there were loads of pharmacists when we first yeah. started um recruiting but now yeah, there's when, a shortage. When, was that?
1: when did you first start recruiting pharmacists
2: oh, i'd say probably i think it was like six years ago probably now yeah i mean we, we when we started getting pharmacists there weren't many around in primary care at all, and yeah. ARS money was a I hadn't you know even no, it have been thought there. It was, that was much probably later two to three years
1: ahead of ARRS funding, and yeah, whereas yeah. obviously you probably know these days <laughs> that um, as the ARRS pot grows, there's going to be less less pharmacists to take from community from boots and so on because well you've already taken them, <laughs> um, and the pot gets bigger and bigger, and you can recruit more and more pharmacists, but the but the amount of pharmacists available is significantly. Uh, significantly reduced yeah
2: and the other thing I suppose is that you know when we when we started getting pharmacists in we kind of bought them in as an adjunct to our to our other clinical teams and I'll tell you a story about the pharmacist might be an interesting 30 second story so we one of the other things we haven't talked about is as well as AT Medics which was obviously our primary care um, service that we were running GP contracts um, around 2017, we realised that we really need to be in the tech business yeah. because we needed our own tech. We were doing quite a lot of analytics using Excel spreadsheets. It just wasn't working. Once you mm-hmm. get beyond really six, seven practices, you you can't you can't get that level of insight. But as I said to you, teaching and learning at all has been really integral to our to our organisation really from the very very start. So we set up something called AT Learning, which was really a, an internal an organization within our organization which really took care of teaching and learning. So it Mm -hmm. dealt with all the medical schools, with all the GP schools. Um we developed our own teaching systems, um, assessment systems. And so what happened with the analytics is we developed our analytics tool. And when it first started up and running, we started finding all this stuff that we didn't know we hadn't been doing. So undiagnosed health, Mm -hmm. you know, unmonitored medicines. And so, you know, there's one thing not to know, but there's one thing and the other is to know and not do anything about it. So mm. It creates like a moral issue and an ethical issue. So, yeah. so it was at that time that we decided to get pharmacists in. So the original reason why we got pharmacists was to fix all of these prescribing issues that we suddenly uncovered because we had our technology company, which has developed an analytics platform. We mm. started, started looking at all this mass of data that we'd never really seen in that mm. kind of format. And so that's where pharmacists kind of came from to start with and then obviously their role once we had pharmacists in i remember interviewing our, our our first two and i was kind of involved in recruiting our first two pharmacists um and just quickly realizing how good these guys were and yeah. them not realizing how good they were you know they didn't realize <laughs> their own potential because they came from the community yeah and i think you know getting into really deep clinical care like you do in general practice I mean, th- those guys are amazing. I mean, one is our, our, our kind of lead pharmacist for, for the for the South region. So she's still with mm-hmm. us. Um, yeah. But yeah, that that's kind of where it came from.
1: Yeah. Well, I was going to ask about AT Tech. Um, so now's probably a good time. Um, so when you were talking about uncovering, I don't know, additional information and that type of thing. So what what does that mean exactly? What what has AT AT Tech done? Um, uh, yeah, what, what, what are kind of the biggest achievements of that side of the business?
2: Yeah, so look, um, you know, we talked earlier a bit about quality and about how you measure quality, certainly for the measurable aspects. Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing about general practice is you can't measure every single thing, but there are many mm. things that you can measure. And one of the things that were, if you like, part of our blueprint was to really develop our own dashboard. It was a manual dashboard. Mm. Where we started measuring really all the things that we could measure and record. And it was one person's job to kind of populate that you can kind of do that if you've got two three you can maybe even do it if you've got four but much mm-hmm. beyond that five six it becomes difficult so we kind of realized that we needed some kind of data collection data analysis tool that's really where it started um, what we then did is did a project with there was something called a ktp called a knowledge transfer program which was mm-hmm. like a grant-based program that we bid for with the university of surrey and imran one of my colleagues initially had, had the idea for that And so we got a data scientist in to start working with us to develop and understand. He'd never worked in primary care. Mm. So we started looking at internal processes, dashboards, what we can collect. And that's really, So it started as a research project, which when it finished, actually won a prize for for the best project in that particular cohort. Right. And we've now got like a fully functioning uh, data scientist. We've got four or five of them now. (coughs) Wow. Working internally. Um, And really, we've got our own data warehouse, we measure, you know, we can, at the click of a button, look across all our sites now, nationally and in London, and look at over like 200 indicators of how we're performing. Um, And then we have teams that go in and help to fix and practice, look at it. And it's that culture of data-driven care. And I think that's something that the NHS is starting to do, but maybe historically could have done better, um, much more. Uh, decision based on data rather than what I think because I've got gray hair or no hair. Um, <laughs> let, let, um, let's look at what the data tells us.
1: Yeah, okay. So all this data was things that no one had ever done before then, presumably. It wasn't being done in any of the surgeries and the NHS wasn't doing it themselves. It was innovative. I,
2: I, I think people were looking at data. Um, I don't recall at that time, certainly when we started doing it, a really fully functioning primary care analytics tool Um that was really specific and designed by gps to really give us what we wanted and then testing it in real life primary care we were able to do that because it was us we were doing all of it and then we had the last bit which is the quality improvement based on it so it was the three cycles um and putting that together um over a really wide variety of things and maybe if i'll give you one quick example so um we realized a few years ago that actually our diabetic outcomes were were not great. Yeah. So we look at two in diabetes really there are two two big outcomes. One is that all patients should have like these eight things done to them every year, which is like a foot check, a blood pressure, mm-hmm. cholesterol, and so on. And then the second is that all of the three targets, which is their cholesterol, their sugar control and blood pressure, should all be controlled simultaneously at a point in time. Mm-hmm. When we looked at our outcomes, our outcomes were worse than London outcomes, which were worse than national outcomes. That was a starting point. Yeah. We then basically used our analytics tool, quality improvement, the learning. We upskilled everyone in diabetes. At the end of that particular year, we had, so our size was the size of a CCG at that point. Yeah? So we, we had like 300,000 yeah. patients, which is like the size <laughs> of a medium to large CCG. Yeah. If you then compared us to other CCGs, we had the best outcomes in the whole country. diabetes um there's evidence that says if you have all your eight care processes you live longer because you pick up complications Mm -hmm. Um, we had the highest eight care processes over 90 percent our triple target went up by six seven percent and we continue that's just become business as usual now so the fact know to look at analytics they know what they're looking at they have a learning platform that allows them to put staff through a training program record all our talks that we give so in terms of quality improvement, it's just gone to the next level for many, many indicators.
1: Yeah, and when we talk about practices looking at these specific bits of data, we're not just talking about AT medics practices, presumably, are we? Are we talking so, about? Um, I mean, also talking about AT yeah, yeah. Is, is there all? Because I understand there's also software, different software then, perhaps that you've developed that other practices use. I'm thinking EasyDoc can.
2: Ah, oh, so well, so, so just on analytics. So the analytics is called Easy Analytics. Um, that's been used by a CCG, um, a federation, and some smaller PCNs are using the analytics tool. In the same way we use it, yeah. they are looking at data, looking at bits they can improve. So, you know, the PCN has created tons of targets now. That The Impact Investment Fund has got tons and tons of targets that, that you really need to monitor. And more mm. and more money is being, a, being funneled through PCN. So I think that's probably here to stay. Um, so people have found that as a useful tool to measure. You don't need lots of people bean counting. You just click a button. You see the data, right. um, and so and so we found that to be useful. Um, but externally, um, there's a there's a council now using using it to to monitor the bits at right. the council. Um, yeah. So so the use for it um, is is definitely wider than than just general practice.
1: Yeah, and this and this will stop people. It'll be preventative for diabetes. Then it'll have real impact on people's lives
2: oh yeah definitely i mean if you can improve diabetes you know one of the biggest challenges we've got now are long-term conditions multiple long-term yeah. conditions and, and particularly diabetes in london especially we have really diverse communities if i look at east london for example we have the highest prevalence of diabetes um, even within that borough and in that borough it's very very high um, mm. because we've got lots of bengali patients for example mm. um, so improving outcomes we know will help the nhs because you need less dialysis less amputation blah 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 so mm. um that's just one disease process, but long-term condition. But you know, doing that across a swathe will really help. So preventative care is a big part of the NHS. So you know, improving flu jabs. Um, mm-hmm. We've done very well with our flu jabs. If you look at our organizational outcomes for flu jabs, are very very good. Again, same process. You know, data. So the blueprint for that now is very clear. You know, start with the data, internal training and program, iteration, iterating the mm-hmm. cycle. Um, but local for that particular population, but that that cycle seems to work um, very well.
1: Very yeah. well. Oh, well, fantastic! It's great. That you've, you know, you've developed something that, that no one else had thought of developing, and it's had a real impact on the the health of people. Um, now, just before I speak to you about the merger uh, with Opera's Health, I just wanted to ask that up until the point of that merger, so up until uh, you're at 46 sites with AT Medics. Have there been any other specific events that you really struggled with in terms of growth, or or just being part of something that that yeah became so big?
2: Um, I mean, look, the as as an organisation gets bigger, um, there are lots of different thresholds you go through where you have to change the way you work. So the way you might run five or six practices is different to how you might run ten, how you might run fifteen, and when I look back in our history, we were very careful in how we were bidding. So we didn't just bid for anything that came out. Mm. There was a period where we got to, I think, six or seven. And we stayed like that for a very long time. We didn't bid for anything else because we went to consolidate that. And we hadn't really ever managed at that level. So the systems and processes that we needed to run those number of sites had to be something new that we, we had to we had to innovate to what we were doing. Um, and so we were careful about bidding. Um, and then latterly, once once we realised our systems were good, and they could take, you know, it's like building the foundation, and you can put some more stories on top. Mm-hmm. Then we became a bit more relaxed about bidding for slightly bigger numbers, but we were always very careful. Um, losing bids was even more depressing than writing them. So, <laughs> yeah, all that we time. <laughs> yeah. We were lucky we didn't we didn't um, lose many bids in the end. Yeah. We had a very good outcome, but. Um, Losing them was always tough, um, and sometimes we felt unjustly. You know, we always had a bit of a kind of feeling of being hard done by because we all thought we produced very good bids. Um, I think staffing challenges are always difficult. Um, yeah. Look, the biggest thing in general practice that I would say, and you know, h- history kind of bears this out to be true. If you look at other larger organisations mm. that try to come into general practice, um, the reason why they've struggled is because general practice is a very, very, very detailed business, very detailed system that you have to manage um, from clinical safety. So for example, you know, if I was managing a physio service, I and mean, there's only so many risks I'm taking, anything can come through the door in general practice on any time of day, any day mm-hmm. of the week. And you have to have the system and process to manage that and the governance framework to manage that. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, very challenging. Um, you have to be very the leadership has to be very close on the ground mm. and you know if you go to all of our sites and talk to the staff we are integrally involved in, in those sites um and we're there you know we're not sitting somewhere remotely giving orders out we are there all the time yeah. and so that that helped us but but the biggest challenge are really human challenges you know is staff and you know people have stresses and strains in their life. Understanding why people might not be performing how you want them to perform. Mm. Um, sometimes losing a very good member of staff um, yeah. who's really key. Again, we are quite lucky that we've had we've got lots of senior staff that have been with us for a very long time. And many of these people started. Um, I mean, if I think I think three of our regional managers started off as receptionists, um,
3: mm. okay. and have
2: gone all the way through. And I'd probably argue are probably use some of our best managers that i've worked with across the nhs you know they're outstanding yeah. and so kind of spotting those guys and getting them up um, but but like you said you know i mean th- the way we met was really by chance core right and and yeah and it was you know it, as you get bigger obviously your staff all your challenges go up yeah um and also the other thing i'd say is that you know working in london so i'll, I'll give you a good example so we've never had a problem Uh, in a really big way, in staffing uh, King's Road. We've got a surgery in King's Road. We've had that for a very long time Mm. because the nice part of London Mm. is quite affluent. Who doesn't want to work like in Chelsea? But, you know, it's not the same as, you know, another part of London that might be quite deprived, might have a bit of crime. People might not speak English. And Mm. we've got a lot of sites in in those neighborhoods. Um, So you have to go the extra mile. To recruit yeah. retain staff. Once staff are in, we find they they love it because we love it. Um, yeah. But I th- I think that's been the biggest one, really.
1: Yeah. So in February 2021, you merged with Opero's Health. Yeah. Um, why did you choose to to do that? Yeah,
2: it's a good question. Um, I mean, look, I I suppose broadly speaking, man, we as you get bigger, um, you. We were caring, at the point of the merger, I think we were caring for about one in, somebody will check it out, but like one in 18 Londoners. Yeah. Yeah. One in every 18 Londoner was registered at one of our sites. Yeah. And we'd often like joke about not traveling in the same car because we couldn't lose like two directors if we died at the same time, what what that might mean. So we used to laugh about, you know, there's a weight of responsibility um, for providing care at that scale. The second thing for us was the things that we enjoyed, which really was the clinical aspects of it. Um, Mm. We started to really be pulled away from that because it becomes such a substantial operation. And what we wanted really was for someone to help us and take away some of the boredom which sits with HR and finance and some of those corporate functions. And so we could really concentrate as gps on the things that we enjoyed which was working with the teams teaching education um some stuff around governance and innovation and Mm -hmm. we felt that that was becoming more and more challenging in terms of time Mm -hmm. um we felt that with a national footprint we'd have more resilience um dick harding who is our cmo very very highly respected professor GP, been in the NHS his whole life. Um, when we started talking to Opros, really we talked to him and Sam Jones. And Sam, again, had been the chief uh, CEO of an NHS trust. He'd worked for NHS England. So having talked to to them, really, it just became, sometimes you meet people and you hit it off, really. And mm. it. The, the discussions were really around how how the organisations would look once we came together, what mm. our role might look like. And it just really was appealing to us at that stage to have a role where we could go back to doing what we used to do when we had a much smaller number um you can't really go backwards so we had to think okay how can we do that and i think definitely we've been vindicated on that front so you know having having merged with operos i would say our governance systems are better than they were i think they were good but i think they're better um i think having more senior clinicians almost you know because what i didn't mention is that the six of us met at medical school you know we've been together Mm. since we were 18 um and i won't say we're insular but you know you become very close even closer than than maybe sometimes you know you might do with your immediate family so it was nice to get someone with a fresh perspective on things yeah Um, and i suppose the last one really was what we wanted to do and what we still want to do Is innovate more. So, for example, um, one of the things we always wanted to do was to take on more responsibility for our patients. Mm. Um, So, we developed, when we developed our digital consultation tool, what we were, when we first started doing it, we used to leave our consults open 24 hours a day and we would deal with them on the weekends just out of pocket. We would just employ people to deal with it. But, you know, if we could take the budget for out of hours and maybe start to do some of that stuff, then you really get into something very interesting. so really we we didn't feel that we had the reach in yeah. um if I'm honest. So we kind of knew our skill set. Um and maybe on reflection, if I'm being, you know, brutally honest, maybe that kind of integration with higher levels of within the NHS hierarchy, we we're probably lacking in that, either because we didn't know how to do it or maybe maybe, you know, maybe we just didn't have the skill set to do it. You can't do everything. So I think that coming together with OPROS now, if you look at our spread as a very mature organization, very resilient, um, excellent systems and processes, um, really excellent systems and processes around governance, patient safety, uh, patient care. I think all of those things are stronger. So coming together has just made everything a lot better. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I also think we were a great organization um, just standalone but yeah. you know, you can
1: always get better. <laughs> and b- being part of operos now, um, I know it brings so much more scrutiny and challenge. Um, you've had national attention in the press, on TV, on social media, of course. Um, I mean, I think that the media's kind of auto standpoint is always negative <laughs> towards a bigger organisation without actually seeing the humans involved. But is um, some of that negativity is is it just political or is there a wider lack of understanding of how primary care actually works in the media or or is any of the scrutiny justified do you think
2: look I think um, when you get to a certain size I think it's it's um, normal to attract attention Hmm. Um, I think when you attract attention some of that attention is going to be good and some is going to be bad Um, and you know you'll always have particularly now, I think with social media, you you know, you find with any <laughs> issue, people are very polarized on the view. Yeah. Um, and actually, most topics in life are much more nuanced. They're not black and white. So um, there are clearly some people that have just taken a view that irrespective of what you say and do, they mm. will dislike you. They'll dislike what you do. They will say negative things about you. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think other people are more fair minded. And um, we certainly have had people that have said, I think that's unfair. I know what you guys do i know you guys on a personal level i know i know how it's gone so i think scrutiny is fine i I don't think we're we're that fast you know people can scrutinize um and and challenge and we're happy to respond to that challenge as long as done in a fair way in a balanced way um what doesn't help is you know silly kind of like headlines um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) about being taken over or privatization because those people that are saying it know full well what they're saying is just rubbish i mean there's no appetite we've never ever been involved in any kind of in that process we've always been gps we see ourselves within the nhs family we're all gps like everybody else yeah so i think that, that that those types of headlines aren't helpful um some of the stuff that comes out is just factually incorrect um three times in my life um i've known about a story on the inside that has gained national attention i won't go into what the other two are <laughs> yeah. and, and, and 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 the last one obviously was 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 with operas and yeah. each of the three times when you read the reporting in whatever it is you realize how detached it is from what's happening in real life mm. and, and so it makes me wonder what how much stuff i read on a daily basis that probably is detached from the real story yeah. Yeah. um but, but you know that, that kind of scrutiny i guess we have to expect um i think it will be ongoing um yeah people are always suspicious um yeah it's and, not just going to stop uh, it's i always
1: tough. i always find the privatization one really weird because the thing is i mean uh, journalists must know how primary care is set up i know the general public doesn't know that each individual practice is often a partnership and they're run by that partner and those partners take drawings and therefore it's run as a business and Opros Health AT Medics it's no different it's an NHS contract <laughs> providing an NHS service to NHS patients and you pay NHS pensions even you know it's it's completely within like you say the NHS family and I know the general public doesn't know that so they just go oh privatization you know it's bad uh, and it's happening under our noses well it's always been like that or at least I don't know was it was it 1947 or or is, it's, it's certainly been like that way, way beyond um, my well, lifetime be like anyway. That. I think, it has, yeah, it has always been like that. Um, yeah, but the journalist must know. Yeah,
2: I mean, look, the first thing is that all GP contracts and particularly APMS contracts are extremely stringent. So this idea that a company or a couple of people come in, set up a limited company, come in and take over, and (laughs) slash and burn is just not possible you know general practice is probably one of the most regulated sectors of any sector right cqc can come down at the drop of a hat they can come down tomorrow unannounced yeah
1: yeah if there's a problem you you know you answer to the cqc not not to
2: cqc um, ccg NHS england yeah there are so many um or i mean ics is as they are now but i mean so so the first thing is that in terms of um in terms of the way we're set up, you, you have to provide the service you're contracted to provide. If you don't provide that service, there are very clear levers to yeah. someone saying to you that's not on. Um, and so in terms of some of the stuff is just, I mean, in terms of privatization, um, people saying it know what they're saying. Um, and And, you know, it's just factually incorrect. You know, no patient is yeah. ever charged the NHS free at the point of entry. Yeah, I mean, understand. how many people go to A&E department or, you know, urgent care centres that are run by other organisations? They wouldn't know the difference. You just walk no. in, you get your care. Um, and so some of the stuff is just, you know, it's just tiring really having to explain it again yeah. and again. <laughs> yeah. um, because, you know, especially when GPs say it, they know it's nonsense. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and it's just, you know, it just it's just rubbish.
1: I mean, the other small point is that APMS contracts are uh, lower funded, the PMS and GMS. So actually it's good value for the taxpayer, if anything.
2: So so look, the, the thing about APMS contracts is that they're not, so although the contracts are now more standard, so they never used to be standardized at all. That the mm-hmm. first thing. They used to be by CCG, by time. Um, now APMS contracts are more standardized, but the funding varies according to that particular, I mean, it's ICSs now. They kind of decide the level of funding they want to give to it. Um, And so they they make a decision on what services they want, what they're prepared to put into it. Um, And so it varies. It varies contract by contract.
1: Yeah. And um, I think in general, obviously, in primary care, uh, operos and and AT medics, you're you're driving the changes in primary care that the government (laughs) has asked you to do and that many are calling for. So the use of GP-led multidisciplinary teams. We've mentioned pharmacists, of course, um, physician associates as well. Um, which has had had some negative press, which is quite quite bizarre because there's literally a a, a government scheme to fund physician associates. But anyway, um, but also using technology, uh, being digital first and and data driven as well. So you're very much at the forefront. You know that innovation that I guess you know the the, the seeds were sown in 2004 with your first practice wanting to, to digitize and innovate. Mm-hmm. So is that, is that an exciting or a scary place to be that you're very much at the forefront and, and driving primary care forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, if I just pick up just a couple of those bits that, that you mentioned. So, you know, one of the, one of the key changes, I think, you talk to anybody, um, and, and you know better than anyone else in terms of GP recruitment is, we know there's a GP staffing crisis up and down the country. It's going to get worse. Government agenda is to have, through RRS multidisciplinary teams one of the accusations was um, that we employ a disproportionate, I mean, we employ 39 permanent PAs in our organisation. They've only got 66 sites, so that's about, I don't know, it's just just over around a half mm. PA per site, which I don't think anyone will argue is, is too much. Seems um, below
1: average, if anything.
2: It, it, it's a low number. Um, yeah. In terms of... Um, sites it says a pharmacist it's the same we've got probably more pharmacists but it's probably averages out to maybe one pharmacist per site it's probably a bit less um so it, some of the numbers are just plain wrong so it's just getting behind the headlines yeah. um look if i just cut away from that in, into really what what is really happening on the ground what what i think is happening on the ground is certainly i can only talk for our own organization so we've spent a very very long time and. um Use technology. So, we've got our own intranet, for example, to upskill our staff that are either PAs or pharmacists or nurses or whichever stage you're at. We have got a training program which is online that we have created, it's bespoke. We've designed it, we've delivered it. It's not an external organization, it's CPD accredited now. Um, mm-hmm. And you're able to do that online. All right. So, if you join our organization, you have no excuse. For not progressing yourself in your career and improving your knowledge. If I take PAs and pharmacists, you know, we have a two-weekly program of teaching. Um it's done it's, it's live teaching that's done um through Zoom or Teams or whatever. Um we have we do OSKIs for our own. This is all funded by ourselves, by the way, there's no external funding for any of this stuff. Um so that upskilling that I talked about is now finessed, it's professional it's measurable, Um, we can check competencies, um, and we work within all the current frameworks that that exist outside, right? Um, The second is, because we own our own tech company, Mm. it's very empowering, you can design the tech to how you want it. So in terms of how patients interact with us, I mean, we've got 300,000 patients registered on our interactive on our on our doctor iq platform which is our online consultation platform which is an app that allows you to um, order repeat scripts you can consult with us we're kind of i think probably a bit ahead of everyone else so when we first started we were like everybody else so you had one practice having online consultations coming in and then that online consultation was dealt with by that practice team we kind of realized probably about you know, during COVID, when obviously we were lucky with the timing because everybody went digital, what we're doing now is moving into hubs, so delivering all our digital care for a particular region through a hub. So if I take the region I'm most involved in is Southwark. So Southwark, we've got like 55,000 patients. In Southwark, what we do now is rather than burden the practice team, we've created an admin team called a digital admin team that just deal with all the digital tra- transactions that come in. So any digital contact, that's registrations dealing with prescriptions and all that kind of stuff and then we've got a centralized clinician team where you have a GP who's basically supervising uh, a team of PAs and pharmacists and they get direct supervision so they're sitting in the same room side by side so I was there yesterday so I'm sitting side by side people can ask questions I'm picking up calls where there are issues so that digital interaction with the practice now is a very positive interaction in the main where people get through, it doesn't cause uh, like a frenetic atmosphere at the practice. The practice can get on and just deal with wild call quote unquote traditional, you know, people either calling up or having a face-to-face appointment turning up. And so I think this is the future. I think in future, this is how things will happen in terms of on the day, you will have hubs, Mm -hmm. MDT hubs supervised by GPs. So you'll have consultant GPs who will be supervising a team of MDTs. I just think we're there right now and Mm -hmm. those that can't see it maybe it suits them not to see it but those that understand (laughs) workforce planning going forward will absolutely understand this is the way it will have to
1: be so you know so so per per region of london you've got an 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 admin team effectively and and a clinical team which is headed up by a gp who then runs uh well yeah working as a consultant like you say so that's that's per area of london and are they um so are they based at a certain practice then where you kind of have like a flagship um practice per area how how does it work? No
2: just I mean to be honest in London as you know we're we're constrained by space. That's a big problem. Mm-hmm. real estate is some of the most expensive real estate in the world so yeah. within within our practice where we've managed to eke out some space to clear out a loft somewhere, you know move some boxes out of the way, we've created little hubs um we've got some lovely sites as well, so we've got a lovely site in East London, which is like a brand new build where we've managed to find some nice room we've created a hub there um north central london so where we found space and really swept the buildings that we're in um we've got hubs um i think uh so that works well because it's regionalized so the people working in those hubs don't exclusively just work they'll work within the praxis so that there's mm-hmm. no disconnect the gps that supervise also work as normal gps they're not just doing that role you have to have that kind of in and out of the hub so that you're not losing the connection with the practice staff so it doesn't feel too remote Mm -hmm. um but on the day when you're just doing a normal shift the digital which lots of practice struggled when digital really took off but then covid kind of went and they were left with their normal demand really struggled to deal with that that combination Um, we struggle like anybody else but i think those systems make it better for us make it better for our teams make it better for our patients Mm -hmm. Um, and we're still working out how to do it so you know we've got three different models of running our hubs we're currently experimenting on what the best way to run them is so we haven't Mm -hmm. decided on exactly the right right method Um, when we do a wash up we'll see which is the best way forward we we, we still argue about it all the time
1: (laughs) cool and then my, my last question you've stolen my thunder slightly um, but I was going to ask you what the next 10 years of primary care looks like in the UK so you've talked about the hubs already is there—is there anything else um, to add?
2: So I think the use of technology so I think um, as analytics becomes much more um, finessed um, as analytics starts to look at unstructured data because what happens right now is analytics kind of looks at what you have and like i said to you tells you what you're not doing Mm. based on what you what you may not have done i think the next 10 years has to be much more about predictive analytics how do we pick up patients before they start to get unwell Um, how do we start to monitor early warning systems in primary care i know they're starting to develop that in hospital in primary care because as we start to work as part of complete systems we all have an incentive to keep patients out of hospital it doesn't make sense we will have capitated budgets across primary care secondary care community care Mm -hmm. so i think predictive analytics is a really important part um Mm -hmm. and and how we start to manage that for better patient outcomes we talked a bit about multidisciplinary working in general so so i think that's a separate point so it's accepting i mean i was talking to my wife and i was just saying that you know as we get older we have to accept that we just be less gps you know as we when we start to get sick Mm -hmm. and maybe Hopefully, you know, long time. But when we start to get older, have multiple long term conditions. Yeah. Who will manage those conditions? Because there aren't, they just aren't enough GPs to go around. They just won't be enough. So the reality is that you will likely see maybe a specialist pharmacist or a specialist PA or something yeah. of that nature. Um, and then the third aspect, I guess, is about how we're going to work. And I think hub working for some things, not for everything, because I think. The GP patient interaction is an important one and we have to maintain it as far as we can. We know continuity has much better outcomes for some patients who need it, want it, desire it. Um, so that's important that we hang on to that as much as we can. Um, whether that's possible or not is, is a question um, and it will be a shame if we lose that completely. Mm-hmm. I think we've lost some of that already because of part-time working um, mm-hmm. or GPs working three days a week and, 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 you know, because general practice is so difficult that it's hard to work. Maybe as people worked 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. You know, where, you know, you had one GP from, from Crades for Grave. I think that, that, that's more difficult now.
1: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um. So I did say that was my last question, but they just want to give you an opportunity that to, uh, to speak to any, any GPs or nurses or allied health who uh, allied health professionals that might be considering their career options in, in, well, either London for AT Medics or elsewhere in the country for for Operos Health. Um, why should they join AT Medics or Operos?
2: Great question. Um, I mean, look, <laughs> I, I I would say, without uh, you know, not sound too salesy. I mean, look, the, the first thing is that we have spent a long time trying to understand where the pressures in general practice for GPs, yeah, and what can we control. So we really try to control admin because that has been a source of burnout for many, many GPs. So we've really tried to control that through the use of allied health professionals. So, you know, pharmacists are signing most prescriptions, you know, signing a very small number. So, you know, our GPs, and I'd be happy for for anyone to to ring up and ask them, probably do, you know, on average, maybe 10 10 documents. They might do like, you know, 10 10 bloods, um, a very small number of prescriptions because they are being done to a very high standard by people that are helping them. That would therefore mean they can provide a higher quality of care. those systems processes caring for our staff um i think it just shows by the number of gps that that stay with us and have been with us for a very very long time um and the gps that have left us are tentative because they've moved geographically somewhere completely or moving abroad mm-hmm. or whatever um but i think those gps would enjoy that um i think working with an mdt team actually is far more enjoyable um mm-hmm. you get to see other people's strengths and weaknesses um and i think people that want to progress you know we don't have a traditional partnership um where you know you may have a partner who kind of does everything ours is so decentralized that people that want to get on have very clear career path from you know being a gp to being a lead gp in a practice we've now got regional medical directors in our practice Mm -hmm. that are very senior gps that have been with us for for a while that whose role is much more management plus a bit of clinical so i think that career path is clearer um Mm -hmm. I suppose the big elephant in the room that you asked me, I'm, I'm going to go back to the last question is, you know, Sajid Javid had, had, had floated the idea that all GPs would become salaried to yeah. the ICS and we'd lose partnerships altogether. Um,
1: that was two health secretaries ago now.
2: That was two health Yeah, Yeah, I believe it two. So, you know, th- that idea has kind of come in and gone out, coming and gone out. And, and you just feel like there's a government kind of agenda towards that. And we'll see, coming after partnerships industry, if they if they, yeah. if they go for that i think that'd be the other big change
1: yeah cool that's great thank you very much for joining us um really interesting um i love I, lo- I mean i love the fact that you started at medics because you just wanted to work with your uni mates <laughs> <That's true. laughs> um, sounds like it's been yeah an amazing journey so far obviously a huge contribution to the nhs not just running the practices um but also the innovation and the and the tech that you provide to the NHS. And uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. Thank you very much for coming on.
2: Thanks, James, for inviting me. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. (laughs) Cheers. Bye. Cheers, man.
0: You've been listening to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you're a practice looking to recruit permanent clinicians, such as GPs, Nurses or Allied Health staff, please get in touch at Menlo ParkRecruitment.com or email James at MenloparkRecruitment.com. For daily primary care news, please follow Menlo Park Recruitment on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast.